Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before You trusting only in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. In us, that is, in our flesh, dwells no good thing. In our only security, in the only way that we dare approach Your throne is trusting only in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that You would somehow through the operation of Your Holy Spirit bless the efficacy and the joy and the beauty of the shed blood of Christ be fresh to our souls. We know that we walk by faith and not by sight. We know that it is not the emotions of the body that brings the peace to the soul. Nor the food to the soul. But we would pray that you would bless our souls to be refreshed and our inner being be heightened in such a way that the beauty, the splendor, the reality of your salvation would indeed be a well of water springing up in our soul. We know not what it shall be when we are with You in glory. But we know that we'll be content. We'll be satisfied. Every part of our being, of our resurrected body and of our soul that dwells in it, all of that will be free of sin. Oh, to be free of sin. And yet we desire to have the freshness of the reality of the forgiveness of sin through the justifying righteousness of Christ to be living and vital within us. Now help us as we studied Your Word. I pray through the ministry of the Holy Spirit that the things that are said would be not only true and accurate according to Your Word, but that the Spirit would likewise apply these truths to our souls. We're often made to cry out with the hymn writer, Where is the blessedness 
I knew when first I saw the Lord. And yet I suppose it would be a very trying circumstance to be continually bubbling over in the rich realities of the Lord of glory living in this sinful world. I cannot say that I have ever experienced what old Warburton testified on his dying bed when he said that at times your presence was so real and so full and so rich to him that he had to beg you to remove your presence from him to somewhat. Seems strange language. And yet we do not question the truthfulness of it. Oh, our God, we're also reminded of old McShane, or should we say young McShane, since he died at such an early age. Lord, make me as holy as a sinful man can be. And yet, so often it seems as if we would take sin and tantalize it under our tongue like a sweet morsel. Yea, come quickly, is our cry with John as he testified on the Isle of Patmos. Been some 2,000 years since then. And truly we can say with the beloved Apostle Paul that our salvation is nearer than when we first began. How soon? We know not. Maybe another thousand before you wind all these things up. Now again, we ask that you would be with us, be with faithful men and saints as they worship you this day. Raise up others who will truly preach the gospel of Christ. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. We're still in 1 John chapter 3. We got through verse 3 last Lord's Day. And my next section, and various people would divide this up differently, I'm quite sure. But this section is verses 4 through 10. So I'm going to read those verses and then we'll come back and begin looking at them. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. And ye know that he was manifested to take away our sins. And in him is no sin. Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. Little children, let no man deceive you. He that doeth righteousness is righteous, even as he is righteous. He that committeth sin is of the devil. For the devil sinneth from the beginning. 
For this purpose the Son of God was manifested that He might destroy the works of the devil. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. In this the children of God are manifest and the children of the devil. Whosoever doeth not righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brother. This section, and particularly some of the verses in it, are quite uh, difficult in some ways or have been because much discussion has been uh, given with regard to the fact that it says, just take one part of this in verse 9, Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. And yet, we know we're sinners. And we know we sin every day. I don't know that I would uh, say how much we sin. You remember some time ago, uh, you may remember, uh, I read from Augustus Toplady where he uh, supposed that we sin at least once a minute and how many sins that would be in a person's life provided he lived 50, 60, or 70, or 80 years. Well, whether we sin one minute or not, uh, I wouldn't be afraid to say that we do because we are so full of sin. And uh, uh, But we like to think that we're far better than what we are, but I assure you that we're nothing but, as Isaiah said, wounds and bruises and putrefying sores from the crown of our head to the soles of our feet. And nevertheless, the verse is true. And John is quite clear that any individual who is born again does not habitually live in sin. And we're going to discuss that. But we will come back to our, our verse. Whosoever committeth Sin. In other words, this committeth, and we have said this many times, but in our uh, King James Bible, which I highly recommend, the in fact, I believe it is the best English translation. It's not infallible. I believe there was some places where the translators uh, erred. But overall, I believe it's the best, and it is made from the best Greek and Hebrew manuscripts, I believe, also. But I'm not going to dive into that laborious uh, topic. But when you see that E-T-H on a verb, that's present tense. That's present tense. And this committeth sin is present active participle. In other words, it means someone who is currently practicing sin. 
currently practicing sin. In other words, if an individual is uh, addicted to drugs, alcohol, uh, pornography, or whatever sin you want to put in there, let's 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 uh, let's get close to home. Gossiping, gluttony. You see how whatever the sin is that a person is habitually, in other words, by habit, he is in a habit of doing this on a continual basis. He that is habitually practicing sin is transgressing the law. And like I said, we all sin daily. However, we do not continually practice these sins daily necessarily. David committed adultery when he sinned with Bathsheba. And he was... uh, uh, also, uh, he was involved in murder when he had Bathsheba's husband put in the thick of the battle and left to himself so he would be killed. But he didn't do that every day. He didn't practice that every day. That doesn't make David sin any less heinous. But I want to do that to show the difference that David was not a habitual practicing adulterer. You say, well, David had many wives. That he did. Had wives and concubines. But we have to make a distinction between that and adultery. You say, well... Uh, how did you justify all of that? Well, I'm not going to get off into that today. That's that's another subject. Uh, uh, I will say this. Uh, from the beginning, God instituted marriage of one man and one woman. Period. He suffered some things in Israel and suffers things with us sometimes. But anyway, we won't get off into that. The Greek word for transgression in verse 4 is the word anomia. Now that doesn't mean anything to you because unless you know Greek. But uh, the Greek word for law is namas. And when you put the alpha privative on the front of it, uh, then we find that this uh, means no law. In other words, we have our English word go. That means you're going in a direction. If you put the alpha privative on that and say ago, you're talking about the past, not the future. And so you can see uh, this is you have this same in the Greek. So you, this word for transgression is literally against the law or no law. Whosoever committeth sin is against the law. Transgresseth the law. For sin is literally sin is anomia sin is uh, lawlessness 
If a person in a society is practicing and indulged in sinful lifestyle, then we are in a lawless society. And all you have to do is look at what we have in our nation today. We have a, a lawless society. We have more laws on the books, but as far as uh, the obeying of the law and the practicing the law and even carrying out the penalties of law in many places is totally avoided. And so we have a lawless society. Whosoever committeth, whosoever is practicing sin habitually by habit, committing sin is against the law. He is against the law. For sin is for sin is the transgression or anomia, lawlessness. And ye know that He was manifested to take away our sins. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ did. He was illuminated. He was made manifest to take away our sins. Now obviously, He didn't take away the sins of the whole world. If Christ took away the sins of the whole world, then the whole world would be saved. But He didn't do that. But it was to take away our sins. And notice what it says. I like uh, the wording of this where it said, our sins, plural. It's not sin in the abstract, but Christ took away our sins, our hatred, our malice, our wicked mind and heart, and you put in the sin that could be put there. First John chapter 1 and verse 2, we see this word manifest. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. Now let me say this. Uh, we said it before in the first three verses, talking about that somewhat, but would you like to have been alive and seen the Lord Jesus? Well, beloved, you're going to see Him. You're going to see the One that is seated in glory you're going to see Him as He is. John told us that. See Him as He is. Also, well, I've got something... And anyway, Jesus Christ was manifested. He was manifested. In other words, without question, without question, Jesus Christ was the Son of God and it was clearly 
shown. Not only by just Him being here, but look in the Gospel of John, chapter 2. Verse 11, talking about Him turning the water into wine. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth His glory. Him turning the water into the wine was to manifest His glory. Manifest His glory. Look in chapter 9 of John. John chapter 9. Beginning of verse 1. And as Jesus passed by, He saw a man which was blind from his birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither hath this man sinned, nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Not only Jesus coming in the flesh was His being made manifest. But the miracles that He did manifested His glory and showed Him to be as He is. In First Peter, Chapter 1, starting in verse 18, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold from your vain conversation, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Manifest in these last times for you. And I'll read one other in Hebrews 9, verse 26. For then must He often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once in the end of the world hath He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The word appear there in verse 26 is our word for manifest. Not only His coming, but the things that He did all were for the manifestation. And Jesus was manifested. He came here. In other words, He was totally unveiled and clearly uh shown to be who He is. And why did He do that? To take away our sins. To take away our sins. Let me read you something about this word, take away. It's actually a little four-letter word, but it means to lift up 
to take up or take away. can be used to sail away. It's a Hebraism to expiate sin, to bear up or carry, to loose, to make, uh, make to doubt, to remove away. It's used 110 times in 98 verses. But we know the classic John 1.29 Behold the Lamb of God who take, take away the sin of the world. Colossians 2.14 Colossians 2.14 Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Jesus Christ's purpose was to take away our sin. He paid the full debt. He paid the full price for it. And notice that it says, and in Him is no sin. You remember 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Jesus Christ was impeccable. I'm not going to preach a sermon on the impeccability of Jesus, but what that means is that not only He did not sin, He could not sin. And you'd be amazed at how many people that believe in the uh, that Jesus Christ could have sinned. And for all those out there that may be listening to me, uh, Albert Barnes was one of the commentators that people think to be quite uh, sound who you need to watch out for a lot of Albert Barnes. He not only denied the impeccability of Christ, he also denied the penal substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And while I'm at it, Albert Barnes also believed that faith comes from within a person that is not a gift of God. I believe that statement can be found in his comments on Romans 5.3. But anyway, uh, God plainly said that faith is a gift of God. Barnes said it wasn't something that was divinely given or a divine implant. It's something that came out of the mind of man. I'm paraphrasing him, but I'll get off of that rabbit. Hebrews 7 also testifies of the impeccability of Christ. Hebrews 7, 26. For such an high priest became us who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needed not daily as those priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people. For this he did once when he offered up himself. In other words, you remember in the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, the high priest had to go in behind the veil twice, one to make an atonement for himself and another to make an atonement 
or excuse me, a sin offering and an atonement. Uh, anyway, in other words, he had to make a sin offering for himself and he had to make a sin offering for the people. Well, Jesus, Jesus didn't have to make one for himself. He only had to make one for the people or his sheep. But do not, do not ever fall into the trap that Jesus Christ was had sinned or that He could have sinned or that He was tempted to sin as we are. Hollywood will depict Jesus Christ as a sinful or sin-like individual. And in some places, imply that He was a sinner. Or that He might have sinned. That's blasphemy. The Scriptures plainly say, in Him is no sin. Sinless. Ladies, could you imagine raising a sinless child? You say, well, they didn't do anything wrong, so there wouldn't be any problem there. You'd probably have more trouble with putting up with a sinless child than you would a sinner. Because everything he did was right. Everything he said was always right. The rest of the children who were sinners, no doubt, caused you trouble. You know, Mary had, I think, one of four sons and at least two daughters because it talks about the daughters that, uh, the sisters that he had. So we know he had two, at least two sisters. Six other children. All they could do was sin cause trouble. They never could trick Jesus into doing anything sinful. No doubt they were always mad at Him. Mr. Uh, Goody Two-Shoes, I can just imagine that. God may have overruled it for all I know where it wasn't anything like that, but... uh, Makes you wonder. But there's no sin in him. No sin whatsoever. Verse 6. Whosoever abideth in Him, sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth, hath not seen Him, neither known Him. Again, E-T-H. Look at them. Abideth. Sinneth. Sinneth. Hath. In other words, 
Someone will say, well, I'm, I'm in Christ. I'm abiding in Christ. Are you practicing sin? Are you practicing a sin? Are you habitually addicted to a sin? Is your life identified by a sinful practice? Here again, I want to make it as plain as I can. Yes, we do sin. But for the individual that is, well, as John said in his second chapter of this epistle, if a person is of the world, he is not of the Father. And when people are manifesting a lifestyle of the world and the sinful practices of the world, they are not of God. That's what he said right here. People will say, well, you don't know the heart. I know what God's Word said. I know what it says right here. It's not a matter of whether I know somebody's heart or not. It's a matter of what God said. Whosoever abides in Christ is not practicing sin. That's the present tense. A person that is living in a state of relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ does not live in a state of sinning. He's a sinner. He might tell a lie. But his lifestyle is not one that is a habitual liar. You see the difference? I'm going to emphasize that throughout and over and over and over again so that you might know what he's talking about here. A person that attends the house of God on Easter and Christmas is not an individual that is abiding in Christ. They have cast aside the house of God. They go occasionally. They go when it fe they feel like it. But they don't abide in the practice of worshiping, of not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. The COVID requirement restrictions made that as manifest as anything of how many people of how many people that professed to be Christian 
were willing to forsake the house of God because of a government intervention. And some people are still doing online worship services and calling it, quote, church. I don't know how you could have in the house of God being assembled that's unassembled. I'm not against having an online Bible study. I'm not against that. I'm not against people preaching and putting that online and things of that nature. But you can't call it, quote, church, end of quote. You can't have an unassembled congregation. Let me read you a comment by Kenneth Wiest about this character is shown by one's habitual actions, not the extraordinary ones. A Christian, as a habit of life, is abiding in fellowship with the Lord Jesus. Sin may at times enter his life, but sin is the exception, not the rule. The unsaved person, as a habit of life, sins continually. The person who is abiding in Christ is not habitually sinning. The child of God, as a habit, uh, as a habit life, does righteousness. And sin is not a habit with him. Those who abide in sin have not seen Christ nor know Him. They don't know Christ. They may know theology. They might even know election and predestination and limited atonement and and all such things as that. But if they're living in sin... I, uh, there's a situation that comes to mind of an individual that I've heard read, uh, talked about, uh, faithful to read Spurgeon's Morning and Evening. When you talk to this individual, they would talk about what they read in Spurgeon's morning and evening, read Spurgeon's sermons, uh, read and study theology, and uh, and th- just uh, talk about uh, the things of the scriptures. But the last that I heard of this individual. His lifestyle is quite filthy. Quite filthy. I tell you, beloved, this is scary. You know, it's been said more than once It's not how you start, but it's how you end. We have seen people among us that appeared on the surface to have Christ in them, the hope of glory, and even testified to that uh, truth. 
that are currently living in sin. And defending all sorts of immoral, ungodly, and filthy lifestyles. We have preachers, so-called, to say there's nothing wrong with sodomy and sodomite marriages and sodomite lifestyles. Beloved, they are practicing sin habitually. The Bible makes it plain such are things are sinful. Notice what it says again. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him, neither known him. In other words, a person that is right now habitually practicing sin, we cannot say that he has ever known God. Notice it didn't say, this is verse 6, Whosoever sinneth has not seen him, in other words, whosoever is sinning right now, has not in the past seen him, neither in the past known him. It's not saying whosoever sinneth, well, maybe he at one time was a was was a Christian and he's kind of backslidden. That is a possibility. But that's not what John said. That's not what the God inspired John to write. What are you right now? Your past is totally erased. if your present lifestyle is a contradiction to your past testimony. You say, well, could God do this? Could, could God change Him? Could God, God can do anything He wants to. But this is what John tells us that we are to say. I know an individual that some years ago people used to ask me, he said, what do you think about so-and-so? I said, well, it sure appears from all I can see that he's an apostate. Well, after some years, God brought him to repentance. And thankfully I can say He's a pillar in the kingdom of God right now. But from his lifestyle, you know, people, some of the those very people say that, well, I think this and I think that and I think so and so and I think, well, I think doesn't get it. What does God's Word say? And God's Word says, whosoever sinneth, whosoever is sinning right now, Whosoever is practicing sin hath not seen Christ, neither known Christ. That's in the past. That takes care of all those people that say, well, when they come down to preach a man's funeral, well, I know he's saved because he made a, he made a profession uh, 50 years ago, but his lifestyle hasn't been what it should have been since then. That's blaspheming God's Word. That's blaspheming God's Word. You say, well, should the preachers 
stand up there and say that uh, he's a false prophet or that. No, the preacher just should preach the funeral and leave all of that alone. In other words, don't say anything about the man, just preach Christ. That's what we ought to do anyway, if he's a, even if he lived in uh, a very, very, very good life. The only, way, the only way he could do that is because Christ was in him, the hope of glory, not because of any strength in himself. I'm going to read again what I've already said, but this is what we said about verse 6, seen and know. We said the verbs seen and know are in the perfect tense, implying that he has neither seen nor known God in times past, with the present result that he is still invisible and unknown to him. The particular word for see here means to see with discernment. Yes, our abiding in Christ is realized by our oneness oneness in him if you'll uh, let me see here for just a minute if you'll bear with me I won't read a lengthy quote by Robert Candish about this our abiding in Christ is, real, is realizing our oneness with Him. It is our apprehending ourselves to be consciously one with Him of the same nature of the same mind with Him of the same way of thinking and feeling with Him. It implies, it implies our taking the same view that He does of all things, of God and His law, of righteousness and sin, of guilt and judgment, of holiness and grace and love, our entertaining the same sentiments with reference to them all. It is this which secures our closing with Him at first as our Savior and carries our consent to His saving us in His own way and on His own terms, so glorifying to the Father, so costly to Him, so gracious to us. It is this also which ever after secures our not sinning. We cannot be thus abiding in Christ, realizing our oneness of mind and nature with Him, and at the same time sinning. And then I said this connection of seeing and knowing is in connection with abiding in Christ being born of God, and the seed remaining in each child of grace. But we'll take that up, Lord willing, as we continue on. Let's pray. Sobering words, nevertheless true, our Father. Help us to take these words at heart for at heart. And instead of pointing fingers at this one or another, may we take inventory in our own lives and help us to live 
soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. In Christ we pray. Amen.